Yeah, so I think they're probably, in, in my mind, in my experience at least, there's three kind of primary mistakes. The first one is not beginning with the end, the end game in mind. In other words, what do the outcomes need to look like and how are each of the functional pathways, which are really inextricably intertwined, how are you going to have to progress along those pathways to get there? So, you know, when you start with product development, is this a research product with little development or so little R or big R, little D, or is this, um, are you developing the, you know, the next better stent for PTA? So there's not a lot of research, but it's all development, right? And, and whether you have to then develop science to demonstrate the viability and followed by the safety and efficacy or whether it's just simply really optimizing a development that affects the respective kind of development risks and timelines on the, on the development side, but also on the regulatory side. Welcome to MedSider Radio where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. In this episode of MedSider Radio, we're catching up with Bob Paulson, the CEO of VentureMed, a peripheral vascular medtech startup. Bob has over two decades of medical device executive experience as the CEO of Nextera and Restore Medical and in leadership roles at Endocardial Solutions, Advanced Bionics, and Medtronic. Bob's exited multiple medtech startups, and today he's going to share his vast experience, including capital, fundraising tips, keys to early stage medical device product development, and best practices when it comes to clinical evidence and insurance reimbursement. But first, here's a bit more on Bob's background. In addition to being CEO of VentureMed, he serves as director for Varen Medical Technologies and Spinology. Before he got started in medtech, he worked for General Mills, got an MBA from St. Thomas, and went to law school at Vanderbilt. Bob got involved with medical devices at Medtronic in the early 90s and later was CEO of Nextera, which commercialized benign prostate hyperplasia therapies before it was acquired by Boston Scientific. Bob is one of the most knowledgeable executives in the field, and I'm excited to get his take on the business landscape in today's rapidly changing healthcare environment. Okay, so before we jump into the conversation, I want to mention a few things. First, if you spent any time in the medtech or health tech space, you probably understand how difficult it may be to hire the right physician partners. Whether you need help with voice of customer research, advice around clinical study design, or something more straightforward like content review. Whatever the task, instead of spending weeks searching for physicians or paying thousands just to meet one, I highly recommend you check out FlipMD. It's a physician hiring marketplace where you can seek the expertise of thousands of physicians in one simple platform. FlipMD features 2,000 plus physicians in every specialty and their marketplace is growing every day. When you post your project and set a rate, physicians then compete for the job with bids and then you make the choice on who you wanna hire. To get started, it's really simple. Just register your account, post your project, check out the bids that come in and then hire a physician. No finder's fees, no obligation and no risk. It's super easy. Even better for the MedSider community, FlipMD is offering to waive their normal transaction fee for the first 60 days. So just head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash FlipMD for all the details. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash FlipMD. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to MedSider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a MedSider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. 
This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Bob, welcome to the program. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. Just like most of these interviews, well, let's start with your, your personal background. And if, if you can, just maybe provide an elevator pitch. And maybe we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time um, talking about you know, the fact that you didn't start your days in med tech, but you know, walk us through, at least at a high level, kind of your, your career uh, leading up to this point. Yeah. So the, the first 15 years of my, my career were really a combination of, I, I went to work for General Mills at a college and then uh, got an MBA, but really missed, I never lost a year to go to law school. So I went back to law school, uh, practiced for several years uh, at a firm here in Minneapolis, where it was my first exposure to med tech. We had a lot of med tech clients uh, back then. Um, but I missed being on the business side after several years and, and ended up getting back, recruited back to General Mills, uh, where I went through a series of legal and then corporate development, and then had a chance to to join a company after we acquired it and and be a marketing director for uh, for a couple three years before I uh, I saw the light and and had the chance to go over and join Medtronic back in the the mid '90s during the the early growth period. So uh, that was that was really my first exposure to med tech, and I fell in love with medical device uh, while at Medtronic. We had we were doing a lot of cool things back then. Uh, and had the chance to do a lot of equity investments and, and M&A work. And then we did uh, a series of acquisitions back in the late 90s. Um, and I led the software Danic uh, acquisition, which was a spinal technologies deal and led the integration and then became uh, uh, VP general manager of the surgical navigation business, which came with the acquisition. And so that was my first opportunity from an operating side to really run a standalone medical device business and and fell in love with uh, that operating role. And so following uh, Medtronic, what became a trend, I began to join progressively smaller and earlier stage companies, um, had the chance to uh, run the cochlear implant business and advanced bionics, and then joined Jim Bullock at Endocardial Solutions, uh, which was an intercardiac mapping and navigation system that uh, was a public company at the time. So we accelerated the growth uh, with a series of new products and sold the company to St. Jude in 2005. After that, I joined Restore Medical as the CEO, which was uh, we treated uh, snoring and sleep apnea with a with an implant. Took it public uh, in 2006 on Nasdaq, and then we ended up selling that company to Medtronic in 2008. Um, and that then gave me the opportunity to join Nextera uh, in 2009, which was really the earliest. It was really the, right at the beginning. It was benchtop data. We had Series A funding. Uh, the technology used vapor or steam, kind of wet thermal energy to ablate tissue to treat uh, benign prostatic hyperplasia uh, in a really simple office-based procedure. So it was really the entire gamut from taking that benchtop data, developing uh, an entirely new product, uh, not something like something else on the market, something that was brand new and didn't exist before. So took it through the entire preclinical process, the regulatory process, uh, an IDE randomized controlled trial, and then once we got FDA clearance, the reimbursement and, and commercially grew the company, 
it was a it was a ten year overnight success, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, Boston acquired the company in 2018. Uh, and as part of that transaction, we spun off prostate cancer into a separate company, uh, now known as Francis Medical. And you know Mike Kuyak, who's the CEO there. So. Uh, that was that was a good outcome for both the investors uh, and for Boston because uh, the prostate cancer application is a huge opportunity and it's fun to see uh, Mike grow in that company. So as I was, I had an integration, a post-acquisition integration assignment with Boston, um, and at the I was at the end of that gig when I was contacted by Alex Schmitz and and Jay Schmelter of Endeavor Vision and Rivervest, who I both whom I'd known for years, uh, really liked them both, and they had this opportunity called. Uh, VentureMed, which had a very intriguing, simple product to go into the large and growing peripheral market uh, to meet a, a big unmet need for really preparing the vessel with minimal complications prior to delivering uh, the definitive therapy. Uh, so we took a look at it and I was intrigued and decided to, to join the company. And after we identified kind of the priorities of what we needed to do, we relocated the company from Toledo, where it was founded, where the founder was located and practiced his entire career. We located to uh, Minneapolis in the third quarter of 2019, uh, built a team, redesigned the device, and have now uh, launched the, the second generation of the product. We're raising around a capital to uh, conduct a series of post-market studies, prospective post-market studies to correlate the retrospective data we have on more than 700 patients and, and as well as developing uh, new products for new indications in the, in the purple space and, and bringing that to market. Got it. And that, that's a super helpful background. And I, we're going to spend most of our, our kind of our, our conversation around kind of what you're doing at VentureMed and, and sort of the lessons that you've learned along uh, throughout your career and, and how those, those are kind of how, how those are weaving a, uh, you know, into, into a lot of your decisions at VentureMed. But one, one question kind of, as I, you know, studied your background in more detail is that, you know, post your time at Medtronic, you, you know, just like most entrepreneurs do, you kind of went from, you know, startup to startup to startup, but then spent a fair amount of time at, at Nextera. Was there, was there anything that like, you know, what, was there something there that like caused you to stay, you know, the almost, you know, a decade, I think, or maybe more than a decade at, yeah. at Nextera, you know, versus kind of moving on to the next thing that, that I find that intriguing. Well, I mean, the, the bottom line was we built a team and we had a we had a vision of what this could become in terms of the difference it could make in, in patients' lives and and frankly in, in giving physicians a, a very effective tool to treat BPH. And so it took, I mean that's what that's how much time it took. We raised our our B round in the in the 2009, 2010 time when it was really tough to get uh, capital, right? So you you had to be lean and mean and and capital efficient. And then based on a lot of factors, we learned that we were going to have to do a um, a randomized control trial, uh, even though that it was a 510k that was going to be essentially be held to a PMA standard. Mm-hmm. Um, in large part because a lot of the devices that preceded us in the space had not been uh, turned out not to be clinically effective. So. It just it took that much time to you know, get through the trial, get through one year follow up, get regulatory clearance, build a build a commercial team, and um, and begin to see the adoption utilization that caught the attention of Boston. Got it. Got it. Okay. Cool. Um, let's let's talk a little bit more about VentureMed, and then we'll kind of go back in in, in time a bit. But with respect to VentureMed, I know you um, um you just. I think received. I, I, I think it was like maybe towards the, the latter half of last year. You received a new indication for the the Flex Vessel Prep System, 
you, you mentioned the company was initially formed in Toledo. Can you tell us a little bit more about how, like, you know, how this the idea for this device came to be? Yeah. So Dr. John Piggott is a vascular surgeon. He's the founder and he's our chief medical officer today. So he had practiced for 30 some years um, at the Jobst Institute in Toledo. Uh, was very experienced in endovascular procedures to treat uh, pad purple arterial disease and had done thousands and thousands of atherectomy procedures as well as participated in multiple atherectomy clinical studies. And one of the things John recognized as he did all these procedures is there were significant challenges both to kind of traditional high pressure percutaneous balloon angioplasty, uh, but there was also a lot of challenges to atherectomy. It was a steep learning curve for, for new physicians. The technology by design ends up having high rates of dissection and perforation and challenging anatomy uh, with an inherent risk of embolization. And those, those dissections or those injuries often lead to bailout stenting. And over the course of time, where initially as coronary interventions moved into the peripheral and, and stenting in the coronaries is, is very successful, the biology of the peripheral vasculature is different. So now you have stents in, in vessels that are surrounded by muscle and bone, and they're twisting and torquing. And so there's a high rate of, of fracture and collapse uh, of stents in the peripheral, which lead to then restenosis or, or reclosure. So John had this idea. He said, what am I really doing with atherectomy? And what do we need to do to kind of improve that vessel compliance and, and minimize the trauma to the vessel, the barrel trauma? And so he created this ingenious device that was very simple, straightforward. It creates a series of controlled depth circumferential microincisions along the entire length of any type of lesion, any type of, of uh, plaque morphology, and in a pullback procedure. So everything today pushes forward. You're pushing forward in, in torturous anatomy as opposed to starting at the, the distal end of the lesion and then doing a pullback and allowing the device to basically follow the morphology of the vessel like a, like a ski and a ski slope where you, you can follow the topography. And then we've been able to demonstrate these micro incisions also create pathways which really facilitate the diffusion of drug therapies from either a drug-coated balloon or drug-eluting stent into the vessel wall, um, which is if there's any, any barrier between the wall of a drug-coated balloon and the wall of the vessel, uh, the drug can't diffuse, can't make contact, and can't diffuse. So the idea was just really a really simple, safe, effective, easy-to-learn approach to, to modify the plaque. And as we, we did over the summer, so during COVID, while we were finishing the redesign of the second-generation device and, and the elective procedures were on hold as a result of COVID, we were able to take advantage of the opportunity and, and do a series of uh, instant restenosis pharmacokinetic studies to really evaluate the effectiveness of flex uh, in instant restenosis issues, because once you put a stent in, really difficult if that restenosis, you there's not a lot of options left. And we were able to get an FDA. Uh, the indication you mentioned was uh, we added a expanded indication to treat instant restenosis from FDA in in the fall of last year. Um, so not only do we believe that this reducing the the complication rate, improving vessel compliance, reducing complications will lead to less restenosis. We also believe and less and reduce the need for stenting in the first place. But 30 to 40 percent of of procedures in in the uh, in the SFA that are stented end up restenosing within two years. So now we have a device with an indication that we can also 
uh, give the physician a tool to help treat that condition. Got it. Got it. And in th- I'll raise kind of two follow-up kind of scenarios, um, and maybe you can you can speak to them, speak to both of them to help help folks kind of get their get their minds wrapped around this device. But let's take a like a, a native vessel that does not have a stent in it. Are yep. are most physicians using this like in conjunction with atherectomy, or are they using it as as a standalone therapy before you know placing a stent? How, how, what is that protocol typically? So yeah, so the the standard there there if there are two standard so if you start with an occluded vessel. You have to open it up, and if you open it up with a high-pressure PTA balloon, you are basically trying to compress the plaque. You're di- you're stretching the vessel to dissect it. The issue is most plaque is asymmetrical, right? Mm-hmm. And the balloons, when they expand, expand concentrically. So the only way to overcome the resistance at one end of an asymmetrical lesion versus the other is you have to continue to expand or overexpand, increase the inflation pressures of the balloon. And when you do that, you then are creating uncontrolled dissection. So you're dissecting, creating dissections and tears, if you will, in the vessel wall. And if it gets into the adventitia, the outer layer of a vessel wall, that starts that uh, inflammatory response cascade then that leads to restenosis. So a huge percentage of the stenting that occurs occurs because you've created dissections and you need to repair that dissection before you leave the vessel. So the whole idea behind creating these circumferential microincisions along the entire length of the occlusion is it improves vessel compliance, which means that you can then go in with whatever you have for your definitive therapy, whether that's PTA alone or whether it's a drug-coated balloon or whether you say, I need a stent, but I want to leave some I want a drug-eluting stent to also leave the anti-inflammatory uh, uh, drug at that spot. You are improving vessel compliance, reducing barotrauma, and in cases where you don't need an atherectomy, so it's not necessarily a Rutherford 6 or a highly occluded vessel where it's rock hard and you need to remove the plaque, but that those kind of lesions that are 10, greater than 10 centimeters, um, the long diffuse morphology lesions that have soft plaque in some places and spots of calcification in the others, that doesn't really lend itself usually to atherectomy alone, or it ends up being a very long, complicated procedure. So the idea is in these long, diffuse lesions that are 80% of of what doctors see in real life, a very simple, easy-to-use uh, way of modifying the plaque or preparing the, the vessel ahead of the definitive therapy, whether that's PTA or whether it's a, a drug-eluting therapy of, of one sort or the other. So atherectomy is not the therapy. Atherectomy is, is plaque modification vessel prep ahead of whatever the definitive therapy is. Got it. Okay. That's super helpful. Um, thanks for that explanation. And one other quick follow-up question on the, on, on the product, just because I, I, I spent a fair amount of my career in the peripheral vascular space. So it's just, it's naturally intriguing to me. You're in essence, pulling this device back then to create those. those Retrograde pullback. Yep. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. Cool. Super interesting. So on that note, let, let's talk a little bit about like, you know, alpha beta versions of a device, right? Yep. And, and and maybe think back to your time, not just with VentureMed, but like throughout, you know, your, your, your career at these various startups, you know, for other entrepreneurs that are in this, in the same type of phase, right? Whether they're, you know, creating the first prototypes and kind of that alpha under that alpha umbrella, or maybe they're onto their second or third, you know, beta, beta versions. What, what do you think is the, the biggest mistake that most, most folks make at this, at this stage of the, uh, the, the life cycle of the company or product? 
Yeah, so I think they're probably, in, in my mind, in my experience at least, there's three kind of primary mistakes. The first one is not beginning with the end, the end game in mind. In other words, what do the outcomes need to look like and how are each of the functional pathways, which are really inextricably intertwined, how are you going to have to progress along those pathways to get there? So, you know, when you start with product development, is this a research product with little development or so little R or big R, little D, or is this, um, are you developing the, you know, the next better stent or PTA? So there's not a lot of research, but it's all development, right? And, and whether you have to then develop science to demonstrate the viability and followed by the safety and efficacy, or whether it's just simply really optimizing a development, that affects the respective kind of development risks and timelines on the, on the development side, but also on the regulatory side. And then within that end game in mind, whatever you're doing, it's so important to get physician user input early as you understand kind of what are the key user requirements that you're trying to develop towards. And that means that you need to have both engineers and clinical advisors, physicians uh, with a clinical perspective, making sure you really understand those user requirements and you're baking them into your the design of the device that then is going to be used in your in your clinical study. And you, you have to, during that clinical study, because once you get FDA clearance, it's based on that data and that design, and you have to walk that fine line between saying, gosh, this product could even be better if we did X, Y, and Z versus this is going to get us the data that we need to get regulatory approval. And it's going to meet not only our commercial and clinical adoption objectives, but it's also going to meet whatever your reimbursement pathway and objectives are. So really understanding that kind of integrated reimbursement strategy from the beginning, because if, if, if doctors don't get paid for it, they're not going to use it. Mm-hmm. So you have to start from kind of where you think it's going to be and work your way back. And based on kind of starting with that end game in mind, that really defines uh, in many respects the team that you need to put together. What are the, the skill sets, experiences you need in your each of your functional teams, whether they're employees or whether they're consultant advisors. So you have to build based on the risks and opportunities in your development timeline, and then really anticipate the fact that in all likelihood, your team is going to evolve as you move through each phase of the company. So people who are really good in, in one phase may not be as effective in another or may not even like it in, in the other. Uh, ex- best example is, is probably engineering, where Early on, especially where you're developing something brand new that's never been done before, you need engineers who are MacGyvers, right? You can, they can figure out how to make one of anything with parts from the Napa Auto Parts store and prove the concept. But then as you move through that development pathway, that has to evolve into working collaboratively with regulatory quality so that you know that you're developing a design history file that's going to meet your regulatory requirements and, you know, sometimes engineers are really good at the QA stuff, and sometimes they're not, and you probably need both. So mm-hmm. really making sure that you've, you're, you're fleshing out your team and you're evolving your team, you know, once you get into the clinical phase, and that involves a whole different level of, of talent experience you need in the company, and then the commercial phase, once you move into that, now you're starting to burn a lot of cash. So again, making sure you, knew, you know what your commercial objectives are and you're building your team around that. So that's the second point. I guess the third point is perfection is the enemy of good enough. And it's 
especially when you're developing a new product, you really have to balance your resources and timelines to achieve the milestones that are going to be your value inflection points for either raising your next pro- your next round of capital or uh, if there is uh, if there are other liquidity event opportunities there, whether that be an acquisition or accessing the public markets, knowing kind of when you have to cut and run because you've got to demonstrate the next thing in order to hit your value inflection point. And, you know, if you have a really good engineering team, they're always going to say, gosh, we could make this even better, right? You know, here's, this is good, but this could even be better. But sometimes you have to start with what you have and then you, then you build in the, the future improvements and feedback based on. So you've got a, you've got kind of a parking lot of things, improvements, you know, you want to make to the device. Let's get out and get some real life experience, early commercial experience uh, and get that feedback and see which of those things in the parking lot aren't that important or they in fact are, are important or more important or are there additional things you need to build in so you can then step into that, that second generation product in a, in a very deliberate way. Yeah, that's great stuff. So if I had to summarize, you know, starting with number one is, 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 the big mistake being not 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 beginning with the with the end game in mind, right? Yeah. And not not building kind of the rest of the team, and really your your the rest of the sort of the, the project schedule, right? For a particular device, right. you know, with yeah. with that end in mind, and then you know building, you know, the next point I think you covered was building your team based around you know what what you perceive as the end game, right? And making sure your team is aligned, and then and, lastly, and what, yeah, what, yeah, what the skill sets and experiences are you need in your team to be able to hit, to hit yeah. that end, right? Yep, totally, and I, I and I completely appreciate kind of your your example around in engineering, right? Like when you're first concepting, you need those MacGyvers, right? Those kind of like you know the the Steve Wozniaks, if you will, right? The yep. the, the yep. people that can can come up with some really cool ideas, but maybe I would say oftentimes that's not the same person that's going to drive drive the rest of that project forward, right? So right. Yeah. yeah, it's a great great comment. And I loved, and maybe maybe I loved your, your last one uh, the most, right? Is perfection is the enemy of of good enough, especially when you're trying you know trying to train, balance you know resources and timelines as you mentioned. So that's that's good stuff. On that note, I think one of the you know, when we when we initially were trying to schedule this interview, you mentioned that you were in the, in the process of of raising raising a round for uh, for venture med. So on that note, you've got a ton of experience in this arena. Um, and since we're talking about kind of like early stages of, of, of a company right now, before we transition to kind of your feedback on reg and, and, and building out a clinical strategy, let's talk a little bit more about fundraising. So okay. what is your, if you had to kind of narrow down like maybe one to two pieces of, of advice for, for raising capital, whether it's at early stages or maybe kind of in those mid stages, series B, series C, like what are your recommendations and your suggestions for other, other entrepreneurs that are in the same boat? So the first I guess the first piece of advice is is make sure that you you've really honed your value proposition, and the value proposition is reflected in in the market opportunity, the unmet need, and that the the pathway of of, of getting there, both in terms of milestones and therefore the resources and timelines are are reasonable and and achievable. The second piece is it's always about the people. It's about the team that you build. And, you know, if, if an investor has an opportunity to invest in the greatest idea ever with a mediocre or less uh, leadership team versus a kind of middle of the road idea, but a absolute crackerjack um, leadership team, more often than not, they're going to invest in the, you're going to bet on the people. 
Um, so, so putting that team together again, that can, that can really help you achieve that value proposition. And then the third thing is as you're, as you're, I mean, it, it's hard. Raising money is always hard. Um, it's, it's equally, if not more challenging today in medical device, just because the money has so much money has moved into other investment opportunities. So it's a buyer's market mm-hmm. and you need to really understand the investment thesis of the funds that you're talking to. How, you know, how does this fit into what's important to them? Where are they in their current fund? What are they looking for? What's, what are the real, what are the outcomes that they expect to see? And then last but not least is making sure that, that the syndicate, if you're bringing in new investors are gonna work well with your current investors and that collectively in an ideal world, you've got the money around the table to not just do this round of capital, but it provides you with access to, or at least a strong base towards the next round of capital that you have to raise to hit that next set of, of value inflection points. So those those four things, everybody that you're talking to, it's it, it needs to be a good fit for them, but it also needs to be a good fit. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.